and welcome to Making of a Story, the podcast chronicling uh, one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, um, teach a class, get a job, raise a baby, and uh, survive during coronavirus. And right now, uh, I am returning to the interview uh, platform, and I'm going to be interviewing my colleagues, other historians, and friends about what it's like to be a historian during this weird time of coronavirus. And right now, I have friend of the pod, Kyle Jackson, on. Um, Kyle was uh, an interview subject uh, uh, probably like a year ago where we talked about um, the Panama Canal. How's it going, Kyle? Oh, well, you know, hanging in there, same as anyone. Um, well, you're you're doing more than hanging in there. You you are going to do your oral exams pretty soon. How how long until you 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 have to do your exam? Uh, I guess it's like a week and a half now. I'm May 11th. Oh man. Okay, so that's that's not very far at all. And and just tell us what are your fields? What are you what what are you historian of? Yeah. Well, I fancifully call myself a transnational historian of the Americas, but uh, that means that my first field is U.S. history, North American history, and my second field is Latin American history, which uh, in the context of this reading list, we're describing creating a field sort of of the extended age of revolutions uh, in Latin America. Mm. Then uh, I have a field in global capitalism, whatever that means. And then my outside field is, uh, it's in geography technically, but it's basically economic geography and intellectual tradition of the Caribbean. That's, that's a fascinating group of fields. And I, I'm really excited to see how you, how you tie it all together. Um, how has it been to do all this reading, um, when you're stuck at home, um, I mean, when I did my orals, I was stuck at home, but this feels a little bit different. Has it been like easy, hard? Have you been able to get books? Uh, I haven't been able to get books other than the fact that it's relatively easy to illegally download them, uh, as I heard your previous guests alluding <laughs> to as well. Um, so I did, uh, right when it looked like we were about to shut down campus, I sort of did a run on getting as many books from the library as I possibly could. Uh, understanding that there was a, a chance that they might shut it down. Uh, so I was able to get a lot of books. Yeah. Uh, other ones are now just, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, no longer on the list. So, uh, yeah, it's been plenty of books. I mean, I, my, my memory of, of, of being two weeks out from orals was that it was a really fantastic feeling to look at a book in my list and then go, you know, I'm not going to read you. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I, unfortunately, a lot of the books that I still need to read are ones that are really important. Uh, but oh. uh, you know, <laughs> there is, you know, I think one of the things you learn throughout the process is there is an endless array of books that you should, would like to mm-hmm. need to read. Um, but time only allows you to target your inquiries in certain directions. So. You just have to learn to accept yeah. uh, the limitations of your own exploration. Yeah, yeah, and you have to end. You have to actually stop reading at some point. You have to put the books down. Um, well, I, I thought I thought it might be fun to uh, play a game that that uh, I sometimes play at parties with historians called that I call spurious periodizations. Um, one of the things that historians do is, as you know, is that we make periodizations about different processes. We say when something begins and ends, and there is a lot at stake 
um, in these periodizations. And uh, I think it's fun sometimes to just try to come up with different kinds of periodizations. And something I, was that, that, that struck me when I looked at your lists was just that you, you call yourself a transnational historian of the Americas. And you say that like, you know, with a little bit of tongue in cheek or, or, or a little bit of modesty, but it really comes through in your list. And I was really curious to hear how you would tie up the stories together. So I'm going to, uh, with your permission, ask you to come up with, with some interesting beginning points of your story. Sure. Uh, well, I will give the sort of, what I'm learning to be a, an important technique in preparing for this sort of uh, intellectual combat about periodization and what the sort of terms of the debate should be. And I'll say that, you know, I think someone like me, and I think increasingly all historians of the Americas are really trying to move away from the sort of uh, national narrative as the unit of analysis. So the idea of we start United States history kind of already anticipates the existence of a United States, for instance. Um, yeah. So there are other ways to think about it. Maybe like, for instance, uh, when I was a TA uh, in the fall for, for David Hankin, the professor of uh, U S history here at UC Berkeley, uh, he framed it as North American history. So you have sort of a, a territorial continental focus. Um, I might, try to think of a way that also encompasses the Caribbean or the circum-Caribbean or, or something that is more reflective of how integrated I see these regions as. Um, but mm. that caveat aside, saying that we're you know broadly talking about the same story of how do we get to the eventual political project that becomes the United States, um, I see there are sort of three uh, different categories of starting points that I, I think would make sense the way that I think about it, um, each of which mm. its own sort of specific dates that you could choose. So yeah. I think the way that it w was taught in the fall, um, I mean, th there's the idea that you start with Native American history, which I think totally makes sense uh, in terms of mm -hmm. you don't want to presuppose the arrival of Europeans and act as if none of the history that happened before that mattered because it wasn't experienced by Europeans. So I think there's definitely justification for that. But if we are framing this in terms of uh, how we get to the United States' uh, origin story, I think the, the first yeah. category of starting points that I would think of is this sort of contact, encounter, uh, exploration navigation phase represented by the sort of first overseas colonization and exploration efforts uh, that really began in 1492 with Columbus. Okay, so so the first so so the the first set of dates would be contact the the uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, stitching together of Pangaea. Right. So I think uh, like the dates I would have there would be like 1492 Columbus. 1527, the Narvaez expedition, which was sort of the first uh, European exploration uh, expedition that actually goes to the North American mainland into like Florida and the Gulf Coast. Uh, if you were thinking specifically mm -hmm. about the trajectory of the British colonial project in North America, it might make sense to start with uh, 1585 and the failed Roanoke colony off uh, the coast of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. 
or uh, potentially you could also start with the uh, more famous and first lasting British uh, colonial settlement in Jamestown, 1607. So, so tell me what kind of story about U.S. history does uh, uh, this tell us? Like when we start uh, the story of the U.S., um, you know, not in 1776, but in 1492 or in in, in in the 16th century. What kind of how does that change the bigger story that you you tell about America, about like the United States? Well, I think it really emphasizes the first of all the nature of inter-imperial rivalry as being uh, an absolutely critical determining factor in how the entire colonial period across the Americas is uh, carried out and experienced. Um, so you have these competing European mm. empires that are sending uh, different initiatives, some of which are, as Varsha was pointing out in your last podcast, some of which are uh, launched by private companies or sort of uh, national monopoly trading companies, um, some of which are sent by particular lords or kings, uh, and, and some of which are launched by religious dissidents or uh, uh, missionaries or Catholic uh, friars and whatnot. But so there's a diversity. What, 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 what your framing is doing is you're saying that there are a diversity of actors who are, who are uh, uh, working to, uh, uh, you know, push Europeans into the Americas, but they're all doing it in this, in this context of, you know, sometimes active, sometimes less active imperial rivalry, right? And I think, so that's one factor is the sort of um, empires jockeying for territory or for trading positions or for control over sea lanes or for access to mining resources. I mean, all these various motivations, uh, sometimes very similar, sometimes very different political or religious motivations. Um, So there are a lot of different things that... uh, that go into how we tell this story. But I I think starting with these sort of overseas expeditions um, emphasizes both their sort of transatlantic maritime quality, the fact that this is an ongoing process of new arrivals, of people going back and forth, uh, of a sort of strained but critical connection to the so-called metropoles in in Europe. Um, And so that's sort of, from the Eurocentric perspective, like that's why it's important to tell the story starting then, because this uh, transatlantic maritime navigation commerce project um, is is the, the, essentially the story for the first 250 years from a European perspective. Um, but I think also what starting in this earlier period is it really calls our attention to is how much the encounter or conquest or uh, conflict, however you want to frame it, with indigenous peoples um, and the disruption to native life uh, that European arrival presents um, is also very much at the heart of the story as I would want to present it. And so um, beginning in this early period Hmm. where those ruptures are already starting to be felt, where sometimes even the epidemiological consequences of European arrival predate even their actual formal uh, introduction or, you know, people were already being uh, devastated by European diseases before they might have ever even seen a European by by virtue of the way that disease spreads. Um, So I think sort of that Columbian exchange framing that uh, that's a concept developed by 
famous scholar named Alfred Crosby, um, this idea that the sort of material biological uh, exchange between the Americas and the so-called old world um, is, is sort of the underlying big picture story that we have to focus on that sort of uh, makes all the political developments and warfare and uh, even the inter-imperial rivalries that I began with sort of pale in comparison. Mm. Are there so? Uh, this is a really fascinating framing, and I, I think it's 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 really productive. And I wonder, so starting the story with uh, 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 1492 or some other date around that, would that change how you highlight particular events um, in the uh, timeline of U.S. history that our listeners might be more familiar with? Would certain events be um, emphasized more in this timeline? Than others? Well, I think, you know, uh, one way that this has been sort of in the news and, and in historiographical debates is with the famous 1619 project that the New York Times did last year. And that, you know, um, listeners may be familiar with sort of imagining how you might tell the story of United States history, uh, beginning with the arrival of the first African slaves uh, to a British colony in the American mainland. Mm. Um, which I think is a totally uh, valid way of looking at it and, and an important uh, an important perspective to bring to bear. But I think uh, including the 16th century or even the late 15th century also draws our attention to the fact that Indian slavery uh, predated that by 100 years, at least. Um, mm. And also, there were yeah. African enslaved Africans brought into North America long before there was a British colony in Jamestown. Uh, the Narvaez expedition that I alluded to in uh, 1527 mm-hmm. included uh, African en- enslaved Africans, uh, one of the, the only four survivors of that uh, multi-hundred-person expedition was black um, and enslaved. 1527. 15, that's, that's what? That's, that's, that's barely 30 years after, after Columbus's first voyage. And they're, they're all, already there's a connection with uh, African slavery in, uh, in the Atlantic that, world. Columbus's voyage. I mean, Columbus had an enslaved African on his crew. And the Columbus expedition and all of the uh, first uh, Spanish and Portuguese maritime expeditions into the New World – they all took uh, indigenous people as slaves as well. Um, so uh, starting the story with, mm. of uh, the political and social development of the Americas with slavery, I think, does make a lot of sense. But I wouldn't necessarily uh, suggest that we ought to ignore the presence and persistence of Indian slavery throughout that Um Throughout that story. Okay, so this is a really a really interesting starting point. I was going to say what 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 you said that you had three different kinds of of, of starting points. Let's move on to the second. Uh, we've talked about how uh, uh, one way that you could start U.S. history would be to start with in 1492 or or or, or the 16th century. What's what's the second way that we might start the story of American history? Yeah. So if we're thinking about the United States as a political project. Um, I think then it makes sense to have the other origin story sort of begin with really the beginning of the end of the imperial colonial system in North America. So um, the the sort of dates I would throw out there would be uh, 1763, the Treaty of Paris that ends the uh, Seven Years' War, which essentially 
results in the French colonial presence ending for all intents and purposes in North America uh, and dramatically mm-hmm. reshaped map of North America and also sets in motion many of the economic and strategic uh, processes that eventually push the British colonists in, uh, along the Atlantic seaboard to rebel and you know uh, start the more familiar story of American independence. Um, so I think that would be probably where I would choose to start because I don't think you can understand the American independence movement without understanding sort of how this giant global war uh, really set in motion, um, not just the sort of geopolitical conditions that made the independence movement possible, but also the sort of uh, intellectual developments and uh, political pressures Mm -hmm. associated with repaying the war debt that actually uh, results in the Declaration of Independence. I'm really really excited that you chose the Seven Years' War as your other start date. Super long-time listeners of this podcast will know that the Seven Years' War was key to my own periodization of 18th century British history. I, I also consider it to be a, a, a really big hinge in the history of the 18th century and something that, 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 that makes the subsequent developments in the American Revolution, the French Revolution, Latin American revolutions make a lot more sense. So just like the big thing about the Seven Years' War was it was really long. It took place on like three continents and it was really expensive, right? Yeah. And then also, I think another reason, another reason why it's important for setting the tone in terms of what you want to emphasize in your presentation of American history is that the, the treaty itself also results in the proclamation line uh, that where the, the British colonial authority says settlers are not going to be allowed to go into uh, across a certain point into uh, territories uh, controlled by indigenous powers. And so this uh, hmm. really draws our attention to the, um, shall we say, inconsistent uh, trajectory of legal proclamations versus results on the ground that really exacerbate uh, settler indigenous conflicts throughout the rest of the 18th century and really set the tone for sort of the, uh <sighs> you want to call it sort of the pattern of uh, broken legal agreements and uh, complex melange of legal uh, legal disputes and um, armed conflict that come to characterize a lot of the indigenous and uh, British North American relations from then on. And obviously it had origins already been mm, lots of mm. conflict uh, throughout North America and elsewhere between peoples and European settlers. But uh, I think the fact that the that we can also point to this moment uh, where the British colonies are starting to become more autonomous and have their own uh, local culture and, and sort of the, the origins of a, a national culture, that it's also rooted very much in opposition to restrictions on settlement of indigenous lands uh, tells you a lot about what's going to happen over the next hundred tell years. Me, tell me more about this story, because I think it ties in really beautifully with with the big themes that you uh, highlighted in, in, in your earlier periodization of, of American uh, uh, history being influenced by uh, both relationships between indigenous uh, uh, peoples and Europeans and Africans on the one hand, and 
the American experience being embedded in these giant maritime transnational empires. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about how we this this kind of unequal stru- legal and military struggle plays out over over the next couple of years. Well, I mean, you sort of the long term history of settler indigenous conflict and uh, cooperation, also at, at various points, of course. Um, is it's a complex one, but what I'm what I'm getting at here in terms of why I think it's important for what it highlights uh, in terms of the American political project is that in a, a, a primary response to the proclamation line saying that no settlers can go west of this this boundary uh, is resentment towards the British colonial government or or in, in the uh, more local context of uh, co- colonial governor. So the governor of Virginia becomes a target for, for outrage because he's limiting settlers' uh, freedom to settle west of, of, the, of the proclamation line. And I think this um, this helps us understand the, the, the whole process of uh, state formation and resistance to colonial power and then national government power that that comes to uh, characterize a lot of the the later political cultures of the Americas um, and, and more broadly. Hmm. Um, so this whole idea that it, it's almost like a laissez-faire approach uh, in a lot of the early colonial period, right? You don't notice the government unless it's helping you or you perceive it to be holding you back. And so in Colonial period, mm. a lot of the resentment is towards trading restrictions. Um, so there's rampant smuggling everywhere because people say, why should yeah. I not be able to trade with the Spanish just because I'm British? This is a good business opportunity. I'm going to do it anyways. Or why are you going to say that I have to pay extra taxes mm. on this good that you're trying to protect uh, with a tariff when I should be able to set my own prices? So this uh, longer story of resentment towards government restrictions um, is is a really salient point throughout this entire new world project, um, but the fact that it becomes uh, targeted towards uh, the the limitation of settlements and conquest um, is going to have very mm. profound implications uh, for the expansion of, of the United States's national territory once it becomes independent. Can I can I read? A, there's a little bit more that i'm reading into this that that i don't know whether whether you 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 believe so let me just uh uh stage it and you can tell me whether i'm completely misunderstanding this connection it also seems as if like for american political culture you're saying that there's a deep origin in americans resentment for a centralized authority from stopping them expropriating people Right. Like part of this this resentment of the of the distant central authority is that it's saying don't exploit these uh, these people, don't exploit people past this line. Right. Is that is that uh, reading too much? into I think that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it becomes a a constant theme in over the the early republic period, as we call it, um, where there is a deep suspicion of centralized authority that. You could trace certainly to the resentment 
that uh, the colonists wound up feeling towards the British crown uh, and, and sort of the central authority in England being this tyranny or this force of tyranny uh, and, and the idea that it was, re- you know, the greatest threat to American liberty um, is sort of the, at least that's the the claim that most historians make about sort of the uh, the political context of, of the American Revolution. Uh, but I think it, it, it is also reflected in battles in the early republic over uh, the right of the national government to tax and spend. Uh, how should taxpayer dollars be allocated? And uh, this sort of conflict over state and local autonomy versus national autonomy is obviously still something we live with in the United States today, um, but it's particularly pronounced in, say, the sectional crisis that leads to the Civil War. Um, so it's a it's a recurrent theme throughout American history that is really important to see uh, in all of its different manifestations. And, and I think that um, North American colonists' reactions to British colonial policy in the wake of the Seven Years' War is an important place to start that story. That's great. And just uh, there's one more thing about the Seven Years' War that I, th- that I think is important that I just want you to, to uh, uh, tell my listeners, which is tell me about the financial pressure that the aftermath of the Seven Years' War puts on the British Empire specifically, but also the the, the French Empire. Tell us how that leads to, to – I know it's more part of the more traditional story of how you get up to the American Revolution, but I think it's just important to stage. Right. Well, the, the British Empire incurred absolutely astronomical debts fighting this global war. Um, and so when the war ended, uh, they – looked in the mirror and the parliament, which did not have substantial representation from colonial uh, officials or leaders themselves, uh, decided we need to make the colonies pay more of their fair share. This war was fought. uh, It was started essentially in North America. It was fought in large part to uh, extend and defend the claims of British settlers in North America. So we need to make sure that the colonies are paying their fair share of the war debt. So they clamped down uh, with all these series of acts, navigation acts, you might have heard, towns and duties, uh, essentially trying to generate the Stamp Act, uh, trying to generate revenue from colonial commerce in order to repay the war debt. Now, Mm. uh, British colonists in North America saw it quite differently. They said, we have contributed to this war effort we fought and died alongside you, um, and there's no need for us to keep paying what is a uh, essentially a British Empire debt um, beyond the, the, mm. the bounds of our obligations. Um, however, it came to be more of a sort of crisis over uh, sovereignty and who had the ultimate decision-making power, and uh, the British Parliament rightly perceived that uh, the colonists exerting or asserting a uh, that that they essentially ought to be in control of their own policies of taxation or resisting the uh, crown's legitimacy in terms of determining tax policies in, in the colonies represented a major challenge to British authority, um, and and so mm. this sort of devolves into into a more. Uh, more of a political philosophy question rather than sort of the actual merits of how much uh, 
is a tax on lead going to contribute to the national revenue? It comes to be about the British Empire flexing their muscle and their power uh, over the, their colonial subjects and saying, hey, the king still is the ultimate authority. Um, while the Americans are saying, no taxation without representation, man. Come on. Like, we, we don't have any, uh, <laughs> any control over our political destiny. So why should we have to pay into this uh, system that we've already paid for in, in, in blood and treasure at the local level? And a lot of the people who are saying that were involved in uh, the North American wars on the British side, Absolutely. right? Like they got, they, they, they got their political and military education fighting for the British in the seven years war. So the seven years war is, 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 is the second starting point and, and a really important one. What's your third uh, starting point for American history? Where's, what's the, what's the third place that you begin? So I think as a 19th century specialist, I think in some ways it makes sense to tell the sort of modern history of the United States, uh, beginning with the sort of continental expansion story, um, that sort of includes mm. the, uh, inter-imperial rivalry aspect of the earlier colonial and, uh, independence period story that we've just been talking about. Um, but also establishes the national boundaries of the modern United States, uh, has very much to do with the acceleration of plantation slavery, uh, the story of national expansion, continental expansion um, is totally bound up with the sectional crisis and the lead up to the Civil War. Uh, no, just, just, just how, how, how is that? How is um, the Western expansion connected with the Civil War? I don't understand that. Yeah, well, as I thought it was North versus South, not like East versus West. Sure. But the expansion of American settlements, uh, now we're talking United States American, United States of America, uh, settlements in, in the West, West of the Appalachian Mountains, um, starts to bring the question of when these new territories are incorporated into the United States, beginning with the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, uh, what is going to be the status of slavery in, in the territories? So there had already been, you know, hundred, almost 200 years of plantation slavery with using African uh, enslaved laborers in uh, the British colonies. Um, but there was already sort of a uh, widespread transatlantic debate over the morality of slavery, the economic efficiency of slavery as a system. Um, and so as the United States was expanding, as these new territories are being incorporated into the into the body politic, the question of whether or not each territory is going to be free or slave, um, or shall we say, open to slavery, um, is brought to uh, to the table as a as a as a framing for how to determine the political future of each individual state or territory, because the United States is a federal system. So in theory, each state has the right to make its own laws within the sort of larger uh, framework of the United States constitution, which did not uh, explicitly forbid slavery. Um, so this is like an echo of, of, of your, of your earlier story of, of, of the uh, post uh, uh, seven years war uh, uh, settlement. Um, limiting um, 
British expansion in a way that people on the ground did not like. There's 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 a, a, a contestation about the limits of, of of the exploitation of people going on here. Absolutely, right? I think that's a really good point. And so, exactly that there are people specifically in the South uh, as, but you know the, the question is asked everywhere. But as settlers uh, from the Upper South, you know Virginia, Maryland, uh, their tobacco lands are largely exhausted. The tobacco market changes very much. Um, but all these new lands that are acquired, um, and, and so this is why leading me to my date here that I would start with probably, and also I, I should note that I'm a uh, historian of New Orleans and Louisiana uh, and the Gulf Coast. So for me, 1803 and the hmm. Louisiana Purchase would be a very natural starting point. Uh, 1803. Tell, tell me what that is. 1803, the Louisiana Purchase. I've heard of it, but I don't, I guess somebody bought Louisiana. Yes. Uh, it's a complex story, but in essence, all of Western United or what is now the Western United States. So uh, essentially from uh, west of the Appalachians or at least west of the Mississippi uh, in the Mississippi Valley uh, was controlled by Spain after the Seven Years War. So Louisiana was originally mm-hmm. a French colony, but it had been ceded to Louisiana or to Spain. Uh, after the Seven Years' War. So Spain had been occupying Louisiana, which then was basically the entire western half of the United States, uh, not just the state that we think of as Louisiana. So it had been occupied by Spain for about 40 years. Due to a complex uh, state of affairs in the Spanish Empire and their own financial precarity uh, and a lot of different complex uh, geopolitical formations going on in Europe and the Napoleonic Wars and such, uh, Spain decides that they think it would be advantageous for their own interests to let go of the Louisiana colony. They had never been able to turn it into a profitable enterprise. Basically, the only Europeans who lived there were still mostly French. Um, So they hadn't really been able to successfully turn Louisiana into a uh, profitable colony. So they decide to give it back to France under the condition that they will not give it to the United States because they still want a buffer between <laughs> they want a buffer between the emerging United States of the Atlantic coast and uh, their territory in New Spain, um, which is now Texas, Mexico, et cetera, California, New, Me- New Mexico, Arizona. Um, so they say, all right, Napoleon will give you Louisiana back. Uh, as long as you don't give us the United States, so, so this way you can have, uh, we can have our buffer. You can have Louisiana. I mean, the theory is that Napoleon wanted Louisiana to be the breadbasket for uh, Saint Domingue, which was currently embroiled in the Haitian Revolution. But Napoleon was confident he was going to be able to reconquer, and then Louisiana would basically be the breadbasket for Saint Domingue, provide food so that uh, the sugar colony there in the Caribbean could be completely devoted to sugar. Anyways, once Napoleon's project in or his reconquest of Saint-Domingue fails and he basically gives up and Haiti becomes independent, uh, it, he no longer needs Louisiana, so he sells it to the United States for what at the time was considered a relatively low price. Uh, historians debate about whether or not that actually wound up being the case. Um, but that is sort of the, the bigger story. But Basically, it's a huge session of land in North America that immediately more than doubles the 
territory claimed by the United States. Oh, wow. And, and so what's the response by on, on the ground? Like, how does this open up Western expansion? Is it easy to people just flood over or, or is it more difficult? Like what sort of challenges were, were was experienced with, uh, I just imagine now if you, like if I was playing a video game and my map suddenly doubled, bam, I just population doubles, my number of cities doubles. Is that what happened? Well, not quite. Uh, I mean, the demographic uh, event was definitely major, but the problem was there was still tens, hundreds of thousands of uh, indigenous peoples between the Atlantic seaboard and the Louisiana territory. So there is still this unresolved crisis from the American perspective, at least of indigenous people occupying the lands of the Southeast, you know, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, Florida, that the United States was now claiming and wanted to be able to secure and develop for uh, plantation slavery, which was increasingly turning towards cotton by this point for a variety of factors. Um, So there is still the uncertain question of how to make the, these lands safe for American expansion. And the sort of result is uh, a series of uh, major wars with indigenous peoples, the Creek Wars, uh, the Seminole Wars, most of which are led by uh, future American so-called hero, Andrew Jackson. Um, and sort of it kicks off the uh, intensification of the process of what we now refer to uh, somewhat problematically as Indian removal. And so that's the sort mm. of uh, major uh, geopolitical question that still has to be resolved, uh, aside from the fact that Florida uh, still belongs to Spain, so that isn't resolved till 1819 with the Adams-Onis Treaty. Um, but then there's also the question of getting settlers to, to move there, right? Um, and so this is where it ties to the story of the expansion of slavery, where what becomes the basis of, uh, or the incentive for moving uh, settlers into the Louisiana territory is the idea that it will be cheap and easy to cultivate this land for cotton and import enslaved laborers. Uh, Initially, still through the transatlantic slave trade, but then after 1808 and the transatlantic slave trade is banned uh, through the domestic slave trade, moving enslaved people from the upper south to the lower south to work these new plantations. Well, I just want to point out there's there's in a, in a fantastic way these three dates all have the same themes running through them. You can see in this this uh, Louisiana Purchase date um, both how American history that you're telling uh, is influenced between the, the 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 encounter between Native Americans and 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 uh, uh, non Native Americans and imperial rivalries. It's not like the, the the U.S. history that I learned through osmosis through watching the History Channel, where it's just kind of like George Washington and the flag and a growing map. It, it's it's America embedded on the one hand in conquest in a in a uh, 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 new continent, and in the other in these pre-existing imperial relationships. I think that, that that's you see that in all three of those dates, and and the fact that it comes through so clearly in all three of those dates is 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 really great. Um, I'm wondering to close. Do you have any completely spurious ways that you might answer this question? Is there a completely uh, off the rails? All of, all three of the dates that you gave were really sensible and 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 great answers for uh, 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 your qualifying exams. Do you have any completely 
completely wild dates that you might want to start the uh, the history of the U.S. in. You know? I think 1848 and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is an interesting uh, possibility. <laughs> <laughs> tell me how that tell me that so that's like you know basically 75 i do not even know what the treaty of guadalupe so that's the treaty that ends the u.s mexico war um which mm. essentially establishes uh the claims of the united states to virtually the entire north american continent north of the rio grande um so that sort of uh prefigures the eventual sea to shining sea map of the United States that we're familiar with now. Um, so I think that's an important sort of, fr- from the perspective of staking the continental ambitions of the United States uh, very concretely, I think that's that's important. Uh, also, it is very much uh, embroiled in debates over uh, the expansion of slavery and in some ways uh, exacerbates a lot of those questions. So it's tied in with the sort of uh, like the same way that the seven years war has to be viewed as the anticipatory event of the American revolution. I would say the uh, end of the the U S Mexico war and the end of the Mexico Mm -hmm. war uh, is very much kicks off the uh, descent towards the civil war. Of course it originated earlier, but uh, I I think it's absolutely critical to that process. Um, Plus, as uh, our colleague uh, and my advisor, Brian DeLay, points out, uh, it also resulted in the United States acquiring lands that would become incredibly valuable almost by luck in terms of the uh, gold rush that happens in 1848, Plus, it opens the possibility of trans, uh, you know, yeah. trans-Pacific shipping routes uh, in in new ways. Uh, it, it completely changes the trajectory of, of the United States and really enables it to become a global power. Whereas, uh, for the first half of the 19th century, it, 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 it's the United States really isn't that at all. Um, and then at in the first half of the 19th century, I think you're saying like like America's still an Atlantic. Uh, country, it's st- it has a hinterland, it has a vast interior, but it's still an Atlantic country. The 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 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo makes it a continental country that can look both to the Pacific and to the yeah, Atlantic. I, is that is that a yeah, good I way of putting it? That's pretty good, and it also sort of sets in motion uh, efforts to connect those two coasts, right? So the extension of the Transatlantic Railroad that they completed after mm. the Civil War, uh, the extension of uh, telegraph lines that span the entire continent um and and, and sort of the this western endpoint this pacific ocean outlet uh stimulates the process of what of western settlement as well um and then sort of from a more uh future oriented perspective sort of what this means for uh the balance of power between the United States and Mexico is, uh, is also very telling, I think, and the sort of uh, divergent paths of those two nations uh, after this war uh, really helps tell the broader story of sort of the global division of labor, we might call it now, or sort of the uh, divergent trajectory within the uh, 
hierarchy of transnational capitalism, which is kind of my my bugaboo. Hmm. What I'm sort of getting at with all of my uh, historical. Uh, exploration i think that's that's probably a topic for yeah. another podcast but we'll, we'll have that was that was fantastic kyle uh, thank you so much for coming on um if you like the show rate and review us on itunes uh share us on social media tell your in-laws or people who you expect to be your in-laws um i have a patreon now because uh i want money um you can find me at patreon.com slash making of a historian um thanks to jonathan lear for the music and duncan barton for the image uh we'll be back next week with more uh interviews with historians thank you again so much kyle do you have anything you want to promote i know you got a new al- album out uh yeah sure you can follow me on instagram at navocado n-a-h-v-o-c-a-d-o and that's where you can find my music and my life if you're interested yeah you- you you might not uh, Kyle's a, a, an adept historian and also an adept uh, rapper and producer and he has a number of albums that you can find on Spotify check them out on Instagram uh, see you guys next week. <laughs>